1: What do we know about the hidden algorithms that make automated judgments about significant areas in our society? How do we understand those if they are shrouded in secrecy and are so complex that the average person wouldn't be able to understand whether or not they are neutral? We are going to try to shed some light on these secret algorithms today with help from our friend Frank Pasquale, who is a law professor at the University of Maryland and an affiliate fellow of Yale Law School's Information Society Project. This is New Books in Technology. I'm your host, Jasmine McNeely. The book is The Black Box Society, The Secret Algorithms That Control Money and Information. But even before we get into the book, as we always like to do on new books and technology, we want to ask a little bit about you, the author, Frank Pesquale. So can you
0: give us a little bit about your background and how we got to this point with The Black Box Society? Sure. Um, And great to be on. And my book, uh, The Black Box Society, essentially has come out of three different uh, lines of research I've been pursuing over the past decade. Um, and it all started actually with search engines and with going to conferences on Google say about 10 years ago. And the dominant dialogue then among a lot of lawyers and law professors and policy folks was this is such an amazing company and let's get law out of its way. Let's you know make sure that YouTube can operate. That was you know a few years later, 2006. Let's make sure that the Google library can be constructed. Um, Let's let it index the web. And I've shared some of that enthusiasm. I've actually written articles in copyright going in exactly that direction. But what I also found was I was worried about certain people who are being either left behind or treated unfairly. There were some early cases um, involving companies, say, that were just disappeared from search engine results. Mm -hmm. And um, then I, I started seeing a certain trend in the uh, decisions, admittedly lower court decisions, where they started saying, well, anything that a search engine does is speech and it's protected by the First Amendment. So it's basically unregulable. And that set off alarm bells for me because I felt like the analogy of, say, these giant intermediaries, especially as time has worn on, they've got, only gotten bigger – to a newspaper uh, failed on a number of levels. Um, I thought they were much more powerful than newspapers, and they they really seemed to me much more akin to, say, the big cable companies, the big uh, rather oligopolistic cable and telecom companies than they did uh, newspapers. Mm-hmm. And and then that was the search engine line of research. And then I also um, had some friends in the privacy community who alerted me to some of the ways in which information uh, that was being processed by data brokers, by credit scoring companies, other uh, entities like that, it was similar to what was going on with search engines in that we didn't really understand what was going on with the processing of the data. That was all called a trade secret or it was um, protected by uh, passwords and, and, of course, much stronger forms of technical protection. And also that the outputs that were coming out of these things were being called expression to be protected under the First Amendment. And so I saw that pattern happening. And then finally, um, when the financial crisis occurred, um, I was alarmed by the fact that a lot of the models and algorithms that were used by the big financial companies also had a similar characteristic, that the inputs often were shoddy data, bad data, discriminatory, unfair, unfairly collected data. And the outputs, especially from the rating agencies, they were saying that, you know, can't hold us to blame if we rated uh, toxic securities AAA because that's just our opinion and we have a First Amendment right to, uh, to say that. <sighs> and so noticing these themes across the three areas, across, you know, Internet companies, uh, data companies, finance companies, I tried to tell a larger story and I have to give a lot of credit to Harvard University Press for – um, encouraging me there, even though it took, you know, four or five years to write this thing. Uh, but <laughs> but I, I told them I could knock out a book on search engines for you very quickly. And they're like, well, we kind of think that we like this uh, broader perspective you're bringing to this. And so finally, it's it's done.
1: So you call the book the Black Box Society, though. So what exactly do you mean by a black box when when we're talking about search reputation and finance?
0: It has a double meaning for me. Uh, the more familiar meaning for – I think most people have heard about a plane's black box where if the plane goes down, they try to search for the black box to find out exactly what happened in the minutes before the crash. And these black boxes are incredibly sensitive. They can monitor 30,000 variables at once. And in fact, they're, they're being put into cars now um, over the next few years or some already have them. And I believe that in our daily lives, a lot of our behavior is monitored as closely as the plane or the car, mm-hmm. especially when we're online. You know, you can see you just our everyday experience of seeing the ads that pop up over and over again based on whatever we do online. But also thanks to the Internet of Things and ubiquitous sensor networks, we're seeing that in real space, um, you know, the like the Nest application that monitors your home or uh surveillance cameras everywhere and and now surveillance sensors that even get to like all the senses, right? Not mm-hmm. just seeing, but smelling, hearing, um, all sorts of ways in which, you know, things can be detected by entities. Now, that's one side of the black box is this monitoring. This other, other side is the processing being secret. And in engineering, you often have the uh, designation of part of a system where we know what inputs are going in and we know what outputs are coming out that's often called a black box. Mm -hmm. And my objection or the the problem I'm trying to raise in all of these different systems is that in search engines, in companies that are creating reputations, these data brokers, in finance firms that are deciding what to fund and what not to fund, that often the monitoring, that first sense of the black box is is bad. Like the data can be bad, it can be inaccurate, it can be uh, unfair data to include. Um, And also that the... Processing of it is a black box in the engineer sense that we just we can't access how it's being processed. That's all being termed a trade secret. And I think that those two, that double edged sword, where we are known ever more, we're being increasingly monitored as as consumers and as workers so closely. But then the companies that are making these critical decisions are uh, opaque. That's a real problem, I think. That power imbalance that creates.
1: Mhm. Well, just a question though as far as the the metaphor used the the black box. So I would think that most people recognize that airplanes have black boxes on them. Maybe, you know, subconsciously they recognize that, but they don't have a really a problem with it. So is that what we're seeing currently that people know that there are some kind of way that companies and government are using data and collecting data about them, but they don't either recognize it or they don't really have a problem with the way that's that's happening.
0: That is a great objection uh, to, I think, um, uh, certain forms. Of privacy activism, mm-hmm. that you might say, well, it, what's really the harm? How do we document um, true harms from, say, the monitoring of individuals? And what I try to do in the book is to sh- focus in on some specific scenarios where people either have been harmed by inaccurate data. For example, there's a story of a woman who, in a giant data broker's database, she was listed as a meth dealer. She had never been a meth dealer. She'd never had any interaction with the justice system with respect to that. It was just a mix-up. But the problem is that these data systems, they're not robust in the sense that this information got around all these other data brokers. And there are over 4,000 data brokers now. So you know, that that information spread about her and it really hurt her. She didn't get a job. She didn't get credit. Um, it, and it was just exhausting to try to correct all of the Errors that were made about her. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, in terms of credit scoring, I think there's a similar dynamic going on there now for a lot of people. There are um, studies that show that a significant percentage of credit files have bad information that affects the ultimate credit score in a way that could – really raise the expense of a loan for people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think on that sort of level, uh, in the employee context, increasingly people are being ranked and rated on the basis, ostensibly on the basis of big data and scientific algorithms. But if they don't have a chance to see, it sort of creates this opportunity where you're being judged by a system you can't really understand or access. And it can rationalize all sorts of discrimination or just careless or shoddy procedures, Um, And I think on the macro level – so those are all individual uh, level sort of objections. Mm -hmm. I think on the macro level, it creates a situation where very dominant companies always have a rationalization for what they do. So to give a concrete example of that, you know, a company – this company Foundem was downranked by Google significantly. And it said, hey, we're being downranked by Google. We're being almost disappeared because Google wants to push its own shopping service. They were a company that was trying to – create a different shopping experience for people online, price comparison site. Mm-hmm. And Google just responded by saying, look, everything we do is for customer service, for customer quality, to improve quality. Um, now, we can't let you see the algorithms because if we did, people would game the system. But just trust us. Um, it's all being done for quality's sake. And, and, I mean, I think that that is, you know, at, at some point, we have to be able to push back and to say, well, someone outside of the company should be able to assess whether that's the real justification or whether you know there's some sort of paperwork in- indicating that there was a, a command or some management push or something that said, hey, downrank our competitors. Mm-hmm. And we just can't get to the bottom of that. And the ultimate irony, too, that I get into is that even when the government tried to investigate or stated that it investigated and didn't find a problem, the Federal Trade Commission basically said that in early 2013 after an 18-month investigation – There is a staff report that apparently is 100 pages long that recommended some sort of legal action there, Um, but we can't get at that. Uh, There's been FOIA requests put in for it, but we can't get into – we can't discover the point of view of the people at the agency who thought that there should be further investigation. So, so it's sort of like the situation where you have both secrecy in the companies and excessive secrecy in government that ostensibly is supposed to be helping us understand what's going on and it just creates this really impenetrable black box. And I think the same could be said actually about a lot of the settlements in the financial crisis. Judge Rakoff in his rejection of her proposed settlement between Citibank and the SEC said, look, I have no idea what really went on in this case. I do not feel comfortable as a judge approving the regulatory handling of these critical uh, financial scandals. And that, again, that's a huge problem. And we still don't understand exactly what went on, who did the wrongdoing. in many situations where clearly there was some wrongdoing by giant financial firms.
1: Yeah, you know, you mentioned this word secrecy. And in the book, you talk about two forms of secrecy and, and a third way that, companies in particular, uh, in finance and reputation and search are making it difficult for people to understand what's happening. And you talk about legal secrecy and real secrecy, and you also talk about obfuscation and how, how companies use these methods to keep secret what it is that they do, um, with data. And I was wondering if you could talk about those three things for a second,
0: Absolutely. Uh, so real secrecy would be something that's familiar to all of us when we say lock a safe deposit box or put a password on our email account or something like that. It's uh, just the brute force of trying to ke- of keeping something from other people looking at it, keeping other people from looking at something you want to keep secret. um, and when people say, "Oh, I have nothing to hide," you know, the obvious comeback to that is to say, "Well, you do close the bathroom door, or you do—you don't have all your windows open all the time, right?" I right. mean, most people don't have have some sense of privacy that they maintain via real secrecy. The second, the legal secrecy is um, a more complex topic that involves, like, often involves contracts. So, say people join a firm and they will sign a non-disclosure agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to people that have gone to, say, trainings at big Silicon Valley companies where every they're told at the beginning that everything is subject to uh, trade secrecy and a contract for them never to speak what they learn in the company about proprietary methods at the company. And I've heard from people it goes to absurd lengths where, for example, um, there'll be Every person who comes in late is told again, they repeat the entire spiel about <laughs> trade secrecy. <laughs> um, and uh, this happened to me kind of humorously because I've gone to Google offices to sort of discuss my findings and to hear their side of the story. But they also, at one point, they imposed on me a, a non disclosure agreement that I thought was so. Um, Onerous, I basically said, you know, at the end of the meeting, I can't even present anything that I've learned from here because of your non-disclosure agreement. So, you know, it's, it's so these these non-disclosure agreements, covenants not to compete, trade secrecy, contracts not to speak, there's so many ways in which the law shuts people up. The final one, obfuscation, I think is really critical, particularly in finance. And that's a situation where, like, let's say that I don't want someone to understand exactly what I own or where I'm getting my money or where taxes might be due. Well, I might go through a multi-step process whereby I buy a company that buys another company that buys another company, all of which are controlled by what are called nominee directors or, you know, shelf companies. They're often called – some, some entity in Wyoming or Nevada or Delaware just keeps these things on the shelf um, and just pulls them off after a while and sells them to different entities. And it's like a shell game basically. Mm-hmm. You'll never really find out who is the beneficial owner of the assets of uh, the companies owned by these things. And that's the extreme case. It happens a lot in like tax secrecy and, and other areas. But the less extreme case are just you know, what are often standard accounting moves by companies to sort of keep some entities both on the balance sheet for some purposes and off the balance sheet for other purposes and just making it very unclear exactly what their assets and liabilities are. And I think that's a, that is a strategy that tries to keep too many prying eyes off of the company's uh, business And it can be used to deflect regulators, can be used to deflect, say, skeptical people that might want to sell the company short if they think it doesn't really have a a strong business model. It can be used in many ways. Um, And I think it's becoming increasingly important uh, to big business to um, gain an information advantage over other people. And I think that's one other sort of theme of the book to draw back from sort of the legal side of obfuscation to its business purpose is that we often hear that, oh, we're in this world of open internet and information wants to be free and everybody knows everything in this world of total transparency. But I think when you really dig down to what are the businesses that are doing best, they're very often the businesses that are most secretive about their core processes Mm -hmm. that keep people in the dark, you know, about why they're doing what they're doing.
1: So then, you know, a, a question is, does this all just boil back down to the value we've now placed on data and then information?
0: that's a great uh, way of framing it, I think, in terms of the d- data. When I think about this a- from a big data lens, mm-hmm. you often hear that companies will say, the more data you have, the more valuable the data that you ha- have becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, having uh, maybe knowing a few random facts about someone, you can't know that much about them. But once you add a critical mass of facts – you might be able to say something with certainty about them, for example, if someone buys a book on cancer on Amazon, about cancer on Amazon, that person might be a medical student. it might be someone with cancer. it might be someone with a family family member with cancer. Once they buy say a wig, then if you know that either on Amazon or if they bought that data from some other you know list broker da- marketer et etc. At that point, you have a much better sense of whether the per- that is the person with cancer as opposed to a person with an interest in cancer. And I think that you could you know, give – I could give you examples in so many areas um, about, say, individuals when they're, they're being sized up for a job or a loan or companies when we're deciding whether to fund them or not, when finance companies decide whether to fund other companies or not. And that, I think, is really critical. and. We have to own up to the fact, I mean, I just recently gave a talk for some folks at the american antitrust Institute um, and i 'm discussing antitrust policy competition policy with a number of people, and I think that we have to update that area of law and and the way we just grasp bigness because it 's so tempting just to think, oh well every there 's a level playing field because of the internet, and everybody could enter in at once and it 's just not the case you know it 's just not the case when you think about like um, if a new search engine wanted to come online and I've tried, like for example, I've tried Bing for a while and I've tried DuckDuckGo, but it's just, my results are terrible because (laughs) Google has eight years of data about me. right? And no competitor will ever get that data. Um, you know, I mean, I, I imagine it's not for sale, you know, now if, if Google were to turn around someday and say, we're going to sell at a reasonable price, this data, um, of course, that raises all sorts of scary privacy issues, but <laughs> but, uh, but for, for folks, you know, in terms of like selling data about individual accounts or what have you that would make it, but even if you found a way ab- around the privacy concerns that would raise, you still wonder, could it really be used in a useful way by competitors? So, yeah.
1: You know, we're talking about data and, and things like places like Google and Facebook and then the, the financial sector and the reputation sector. And I'm just wondering about the connection between government and <laughs> these huge corporations, and some not so huge, but huge in the fact that they have huge stores of data or access to huge stores of data. And I mean, we think about the corporate part, but since Snowden, for example, we need to pay attention to the government interest in. This collection of data. And I was wondering if you could talk about that interrelationship between government and corporations.
0: Yes, that's a a big theme of the book. And I think it's critical for us to, I think I would go so far as to say it's critical for us to stop talking about the state and the market. Mm -hmm. I just feel like those terms have become very uh, problematic in a lot of these contexts. And one of the examples is that and I'll, I'll use this both with the big data companies and with the big money firms. And one somewhat controversial thesis I, I want to put out there, um, it's implicit in the book, but I think it, it, you can draw it from it, is that one of the reasons why the US government may be allowing entities like Google, Facebook, Amazon, and on the banking side, the mega investment banks, Goldman City, JP Morgan, et cetera, to get so big. Is that they realize they're almost instruments of foreign policy and foreign affairs. Right. So, for example, one of the stories in the in the wake of the Snowden revelations was that the EU official who was in charge of antitrust investigations with respect to some of these big data firms was being watched by the NSA. Um, and we see from the Snowden files that a lot of the NSA's conduits for watching people are um, have been. These firms and these firms were relatively vulnerable to several different forms of um, so attack, quote unquote attack um, by the NSA. I say quote unquote because there are just so many connections between these firms. So, for example, when these firms of government, so when Google was being uh, hacked by Chinese hackers, I believe that they went to the government and asked for help cut um, vice versa, you have the example of the government going to Amazon for a $600 million contract for cloud services for the CIA. Um, and you also have the guy who's head of Amazon also owning the Washington Post, which is, you know, one of the two major national papers that you'd expect to cover that sort of thing. So, I mean, I, I think that it, the odd thing about this is that. I some I really sympathize with this singer MIA sometimes. MIA uh, <laughs> had this had this song that she released, I think, in twenty ten that was sort of uh people all made fun of her for it because some of the lines were um the headphones connected to the Google connected to the government or something like that. You know, mm-hmm. and and it, And people at the time said, well, how can you prove that they're really connected? And, you know, it took something like this spectacular leak by Snowden to demonstrate that, to demonstrate that there was um – now, of course, the folks in Google are going to say, oh, this was not something we cooperated on. This was an attack by the government and we're going to harden ourselves to it. But on the other hand, you know, I mean I I think it's just – it's very hard to take that really seriously because on the other hand too, we have to think about the policy issues raised by Having some really massive firm being completely impermeable to mm. government monitoring—that's that's a real conundrum that I think is not adequately raised by, not adequately addressed by a lot of folks that say, "Oh, just encrypt all the things." Because um, if you do encrypt all the things, then you sort of create uh, really big opportunities for law breaking that we also have to be worried about, particularly in light of all the law breaking in the financial sector.
1: Mm-hmm. But how could we really be shocked? by connections between government and firms that collect a lot of data, particularly with those of us who understand, say, like the third-party doctrine, right, where government is like, yes, uh, these people are collecting information. We're not doing it. We're just getting the information that they already collected. So why is it shocking at all that government would try to access this information?
0: Yes, you're right. I mean, that is the (laughs) – well, you know, and that is a – it reminds me of this great book title, "Against the Self Images of the Age," mm-hmm. and uh, so there's we have a self image of our of ourselves as having this strict separation between the government and say a large corporate entity. And I often hear this at think tank discussions of privacy. You hear somebody say, "Well, the CIA can throw you in jail, or the local police can throw you in jail, but Amazon can't throw you in jail," or something <laughs> like that, and. Oh, and, and what I find so troubling about that is that exactly we've known since at least, you know, for, for years that government was buying data from companies. So even if it couldn't collect it by itself, thanks to Fourth Amendment strictures, you have a great article by Chris Hofnagel called Big Brother's Little Helpers about <laughs> all the data brokers, and then, you know, you, you apply that to the other types of firms. Um, so I, I do think, but I, I want to defend sort of some of the idealism behind that because I think the idealism behind it is the thought that the Fourth Amendment really means something and that there ought to be a spirit of the Fourth Amendment that would govern uh, data usage and that part of that spirit would be that you're only going to be investigating people once you have some probable cause that you've gotten outside of, say, a dragnet search of all the data or vast quantities of data. Um, so I think that sort of is is the idealism behind it. But I think you're absolutely right to say that, given the third party doctrine, it is odd that um, that that people would be so surprised by it.
1: Yeah. To go even further, is the interrelatedness with government is that an Achilles' heel for these companies? Like, so because they are so connected with government, could a court possibly rule that they are? you know, basically arms of government and therefore constitutional protections would apply, say fourth amendment uh, protections.
0: I I really like that line of reasoning as a matter of ethics and of (laughs) policy. And I think that it does, but I, I, unfortunately the state action doctrine um, is so weak in the United States that, I mean, there are even cases out there in the circuit courts where, where a, school that received 90% of its funding from the state of Maine and had all of these different sort of ways in which it was being regulated by the state, et cetera, still had some way in which it self-characterized itself as being private. Um, The the irony though is that – I mean I think that people now, at least in the banking system though, are realizing that the really big banks, the really big financial firms are entirely dependent on government subvention and the promise that if they ever get into really bad trouble – that the government's going to bail them out um, and therefore get rid of any risk, any uh, risk by counterparties of those firms um, in case the the firms fail. So this too-big-to-fail problem, I think, is at least it's, it justifies a lot more action by regulatory agencies, but I don't know if it's ever going to actually lead to the optimal amount of, of uh, intervention there.
1: So what is our... Or what are our options? What can we do? Or what can government do?
0: Well, I structure the last uh, two chapters of my book. The book has pretty long chapters, so these these two chapters are mm-hmm. the, the the first effort I make to solve these problems, or to propose not really solutions, but to pro- propose ways to uh, ameliorate the worst effects. Mm-hmm is I look at the existing laws and I propose ways in which we could either extend the law within the current framework or interpret it in better ways. And I think that that's an area where, for example, with data brokers, I think that we need to change the law in order to, um, for example, when they have health data to treat everybody with health data, the way we treat, say, healthcare providers, um, that you have a right to review that, that you have a right uh, and that there are laws against certain uses of it like employers are not to use it, uh, employers should not be using it, banks shouldn't be using it, credit card companies shouldn't be using it. That sensitive information I think is really critical to, to and putting that under a much more robust regulatory scheme because in the U.S. we have this sort of very weak regime of regulating data in general and then we have a, a pretty strong regime uh, in the health privacy area although that could be better as well. So that's on the data side. In the search engine side, you know, that sort of um, – that approach would involve things like the European unions, uh, some of the things that have been brought up in the context of the European unions, antitrust investigations of Google. Mm-hmm. They have, for example, said that they've wanted to see – to force Google when it uh, – when the top result in a Google search is a Google-owned property, they would force it to give other options, you know, so you don't have – don't have the leveraging of, say, the – power over the search engine into power over Oh, well, because we're the dominant search engine. Now we get to be the dominant um, provider of weather. You know, when people search for weather, it's just Google weather and finance, Google finance and shoes, Google shoes or whatever the thing might be, you know? So I think that is a, that's a useful thought and it's a useful thought for Amazon as well. And for, you know, some other, these large uh, monolithic uh, firms in the finance side, I propose that essentially a lot of the surveillance that's done to people that we find analogs for that type of incredibly fine-grained surveillance um, for banks and for financial institutions so that we have regulators knowing in real time what's going on. I also use my experience in healthcare law to say that basically in healthcare, we have incredibly aggressive uh prosecution of fraud, of healthcare fraud and abuse among hospitals. We have nothing similar in the bank context. And so, for example, you have private companies contracting with the government to go after healthcare fraud and abuse. Mm -hmm. You only have very experimental limited uses of private companies. Like I believe Palantir was hired as a uh, special advisor for Preet Bharara's case against some financial firm uh, last year in some insider trading context. But I believe that you know you could have much more use of bounties. Uh, I wrote an article this year called uh, "Private Certifiers" and, Bount- and and talks about bounties um, in the healthcare system, and and I think you could do that in finance as well to enforce existing laws. But the last chapter of my book sort of says it steps back from all the current laws, and um, I think the last chapter is more relevant, especially given the political shifts that you know we've just seen in in November of this year, twenty fourteen, which is to say that you know it's. A lot of the existing regulatory bodies are being hamstrung by a hostile Congress, uh, which is you know entirely solicitous uh, to the the big firms that I, I describe in the critique in the book and I think that we've we 've got a i think in the same way that you know people like Hayek and the Montpellerin Pelerin society you know in the 50s were uh, sort of uh, were thinking on a very broad scale about how they were going to push back against the New Deal, I think they've basically won. I mean, I think over the past decades, the the, the vision of Hayek has essentially been realized or the vision of a lot of neoliberals in particular has been realized in the way that we govern these areas and that people that would want a better governance framework have to think that big. And one of the things that I'm, I'm sad about and that I'm saddened by in these areas is that I believe a lot of the establishment um, critics of the firms that I discuss, they're really playing a a sort of small ball approach. They're they're thinking in in a very small bore level. They're not thinking about the broader ways in which you have to reshape the entire political economy in order to really promote competition and to promote the types of innovation that actually create a more productive economy versus the types that are just um, reallocating um, or or even parasitic on Mm. Genuinely productive activity.
1: So one of the things that you talk about in the book, as well as one of the options or advocated ways to assist in helping us understand and perhaps then regulate what's going on is the idea of transparency. And you say though, that transparency is just not enough. So even if we found some information that, Just knowing about it doesn't exactly change things.
0: That's exactly right. And I think it could – there are ways in which it can actually be Mm self-defeating. So one example I would give or that I am thinking about more when talking to privacy advocates is just about every week this year, we've had some privacy – blow up. Uh, Kashmir Hill calls them like privacy freakouts. So for example, like we find out that Verizon and AT&T have this hidden code that Julia Angwin at ProPublica has revealed. Mm-hmm. And I am amazed at the ability of these reporters to sort of probe and to find out what exactly is going on in this new data economy that essentially is rendering trivial nearly all of the privacy enhancing technologies that people might be using to uh, try to try to have some sort of digital privacy. The problem though is that um, sometimes this leads to policy action, but sometimes but you might also want to step back from it and say, all right, we've had the Wall Street Journal What they know series for over four three or four years we've had the Snowden revelations. we have this drip drip of privacy revelations all the time there's a way in which it's conditioning us to basically think there is no privacy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that is the same thing can happen with transparency when there's not punitive action. We have found out so much about terrible things happening in the bank. There's rap sheets that you can compile on nearly all of the large banks in the U.S. or sort of globally the largest banks. And I state in the book that I believe that the, the wrongdoing of many of these banks is not being held out. By in, in a lot of business schools or other places as things you should never do, mm. I believe there are lots of aspiring Fabrice Torres. You know, now admittedly really he was caught, but I mean there, there are lots of people that aspire to a, a salary of two million, four million a year in bond trading or or other for, F, forex trading, whatever it might be, that see these things as normative. That see that say, oh well how will I think of uh, and you know an example of this is you know there was a remainder trust that was developed by a tax attorney that uh, was sort of in a very shady way saved some people millions of dollars. The IRS shut it down. The guy was brazen enough to, to develop something called son of remainder trust. You know? so, so you have sort of the, the norms that essentially the transparency, all that it seems to do in many areas is to um, encourage uh, the, the bad behavior. And I think that there you, we have to get beyond transparency and we have to say, well, what are the ultimate incentives here? Um, I believe that as long as you have, for example, a finance sector that's premised on – massive bonuses and trying to get a huge score on a sure thing within a year or or two years and getting a massive bonus. um, That's just an open invitation to bad behavior. It's what William K. Black calls a criminogenic environment. And I think that you have to look at the, the motives there. Um, I say towards the end of the book as well, that, you know, we, we need to rethink this whole internet environment of say, paying for every play of a song or something, or trying to quantify, the quality and and value of everything and say, well, if something's played a million times, it's obviously better than something that's played a hundred times or something like that or needs to be compensated far, far, far more. Um, I think that we really have to re-examine the incentives behind all these systems and that we can never assume that transparency itself is going to just provoke better action.
1: Exactly. And I guess a related question is, What would be a punishment sufficient or what kind of punishments would be sufficient for to to serve as notice to businesses like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon, like some of the banks that this is the type of behavior that we don't. Appreciate because I mean, if we see things like consent decrees and the really low sums of money that some of these places have had to pony up, it's a drop in the bucket. So it's like a slap on the wrist, and they'll continue doing whatever um, reprehensible activity (laughs) that they were doing before. So it doesn't really mean anything to them. But what kind of punishments would actually motivate people and companies to change? Their, their activities
0: I believe that the um, the thinking out of Europe here is more compelling than a lot of the American agencies thinking, but we still have to um, work harder so to give a, an example to sort of quantify this, the most ridiculous uh, quote unquote penalty that I discuss in the book is the FCC in response to some uh, wrongdoing by Google imposed a $25,000 fine. And this is a company that, you know, literally has billions in revenue. Um, The FTC, Federal Trade Commission, in response to some data problems, was imposing fines at the level of like, I think it was $8 million, $22 million, again, for companies for which that is an afternoon of revenue. Um, HSBC, uh, the bank, was fined in the context of a... uh, Drug law or a money laundering operation that you know materially advanced the business interests of some very shady criminals it was fine. I think it was uh, six weeks of profits. So that's getting closer. But I think that the proposal by Vivian Redding um, that in the privacy context you would apply something like the antitrust penalties that would be up to two percent of the global revenues of the firm. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking business. Now we're when, we, when you get to that level. You know, that would be about, I think, a billion dollars for Google at the time she proposed that. You know, you're getting closer to a real penalty for some of these things going on. But on the other hand, I mean, even in the bank context, you do have billions of dollars of settlements going on um, for all sorts of uh, misbehavior and bad and criminal activity. And but there's no people that are losing, that are going to jail. First of all, there are no, the, the very few of the top managers of anybody. Is, is I don't believe anybody at the top is going to jail. Maybe some, you know, un, unfortunate um, uh, person at the bottom, you know, ends up in trouble. But what's even worse is that, you know, let's say that we we say to ourselves, you know, there's always going to be some form of uncertainty or some uh, way in which we don't want to be putting these people in jail. That this is a different type of crime that. And say uh, of crime of violence or drunk driving or something like that, then we should say at least they should be losing their net, some of their net worth. Mm-hmm. And what, what I find the most in, in inexplicable about the financial crisis is that you have so many of the main actors that clearly did very bad things and clearly have been uh, you know adjudged um, to have engaged in behavior that you know lost. Billions of dollars caused instability of the global financial system, and yet they walk away with, with very wealthy. You know, walking away with literally hundreds of millions of dollars in the case of, of some of these actors that I describe in the book. And I, I just sort of feel like, it, until you have a regulatory regime that actually takes away real net worth from the perpetrators of these activities. You're never going to get anywhere, mm-hmm. and um, there's some very weak action in this direction. In the sense of like clawbacks of bonuses, you know, things like that, where the supposedly two or three years out, if the firm profits on which bonuses were based turned out to have been based on a on a illusory or or even you know uh, on gains that did not actually materialize or that were lost immediately afterwards, they're supposed to claw back the bonuses. I just. It's even that regime is not really enough to stop um, the parasitic activity and the extractive activity from happening, um, and so I think we really have to look at the people. And I think this is a big uh, question in law now. There's a piece by the book by Brandon Garrett called "Too Big to Jail" that looks at this problem systematically. But I actually think that the book that might be cut closer to a um, a real solution here is a book uh, by Rena Steiner called. Why not jail, um, looking at some executives at say companies where people have died thanks to the negligence of the of the folks involved okay. and I think that's and, and we have to and and there I think that's a certain category in terms of health and safety, but I think in these finance and internet companies, my proposed solution would be even if we 're not thinking at all about jail time for mis for wrongdoing, et cetera, we should be thinking about what would hit the bottom line of the individuals that made the decision because otherwise their actions become not stories of, of what to avoid, but they become normative. They become what to do.
1: Mm-hmm. Now we're, we're talking about what perhaps should happen to the, the CEOs and, and other people in charge at these companies that, that have black boxes with respect to their collection and analysis and use of data. The question though, I think shifts towards if we can't if law isn't really helping us out and policy isn't really helping us out is there does there need to be a fundamental change in culture, <laughs> like the ways people view data information and getting over, so to speak or or making the most money um, off of the information of other people
0: absolutely. I completely agree with that. and I, I feel like that is where the last chapter of my book really makes a contribution. I mean, I feel like the I, – I don't want to overclaim for it, but I do feel like chapter five in it that goes over legal solutions is a – I hope that people in policy positions will review it and will look at it as a roadmap for how to regulate the new data economy mm-hmm. and the fundamental principles that should govern that regulation. But I don't think we're ever going to get to a point where there is sufficient political will to provide the resources to help those folks get to where they need to go because, frankly, they're going to need lots more engineers, lots more attorneys, much more legal authority and many many more resources to do that. The way we get the political will is to change the culture. And I believe the way that we change the culture is that we stop thinking of these firms as being um, – It's sort of full of rocket scientists that are doing things that are far too complicated for any of us to understand. And there's a few routes to get to that cultural realization. One is that we have to stop thinking about, say, some of these uh, big data firms. We have to see that oftentimes what really explains their advantage is not ingenious algorithms or ingenious uses of the data. It's just the fact that they have all the data. So I believe that, you know, you could give the data that's at, say, a Facebook or a Google or um, one of these massive companies in Amazon, give it to another group of people, and I imagine they'd, rel- in, you know, in, in, in some amount of time, they would be providing services that were as good, maybe even better, you know, and I, and I think we should experiment with that even in things like the Google Book Search. I mean, I would love to see all the corpus of those books. Um, Released to another search engine that could try to organize it and utilize it in a better way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, I, and I think monopolistic control of content or data is often the real reason for their dominance. It's not um, just them being better. And, I mean, you see it, like, I think most vividly in something like Instagram, right? I mean, you always hear the this, this stat. I, I would constantly hear this in um, the big business talks where they say Instagram now with 14 people is worth more than Kodak was at some point when well, it had 1,400 people or 14,000 or however many employees Kodak's had, and the implication for many of the speakers is that these 14 people are just that much more ingenious than the sort of poor clods that were running the paper mill and or running the mill at uh, Kodak to make film or something. <sighs> And to me, it's just, no, they happen to to have coded in a relatively short amount of time. Some people say it took like an afternoon to code it. I don't know if that's true, but they coded relatively quickly this platform that a lot of people happened to jump on. It was the right time that, you know, f- for that to happen. And then they have all the data and then they use it. Um, and until, and I would say, I would put the burden on these giant companies and I would say, Look, until we have another entity that has as much data as you have, we will never know whether your dominance is due to your data advantage or to your real skill as engineers and managers and marketers and and all the rest. Um, And I think once we start thinking about it in that way, I mean, with the the big banks, it's even more obvious. I mean, I think with the big banks, it's just a matter of – and one of the themes of the book that runs through is that having a huge amount of data and having a huge amount of money – are both similar situations where the more you have, the more like the more you're likely to get. It's mm-hmm. sort of Burton's old um, uh, Matthew problem: to those who have much, much will be given. Um, that that old parable from the, New Test- uh, from the New Testament. And so, I sort of feel like that is a a similar issue with the banks, and I think that the the obviousness of their advantage being based on their the fact that the Fed will. Bail out a lot of the systemically important financial institutions, even though it says it won't. We all sort of know wink, wink, nod, nod that it will. Um, that's the reason they're in this commanding position. It has nothing to do with, uh, or it, it does not have nearly as much to do, I believe, with the skill of the people involved. Um, witness the financial crisis, witness people at the very top levels of the bank investing in, you know. Florida, Arizona, Florida, California real estate that crashed in value, mm-hmm. um, and I, I just I, I think that that's the type of cultural change that we need. We need a much more skeptical attitude towards the entities that are sort of at the top of the economy. And my last uh, gloss on that point is that I do a lot of work in healthcare, and one of the things that really motivated me to do this book was that I so often read this literature of healthcare disruption by folks like Clayton Christensen, um, Regina Herzlinger, other folks in the business community that suggest that healthcare is this incredibly overregulated, old-fashioned, slow field and say that if only we could shake it up with the methods of big finance and big internet companies, uh, we'd be on the road to nirvana. And I think that there are – and, and I do a lot of work in big data and healthcare, and I think that you know there could be some incredible outcomes. I'm all for getting more innovative uses of data in healthcare. Mm-hmm. but I also feel like there's a lot that the internet and finance companies could learn from the healthcare sector you know and, and I mean for example, there was a proposal put out by some law professors that any new financial instrument be vetted. In the same way that the FDA vets new pills, mm-hmm. you know, we don't let just new pills go on the market um, because they could be toxic. Similarly, something like a credit default swap used the wrong way in many contexts could be can be completely devastating to the financial system. Um, and so, I think that you know, just very practical examples of how the healthcare system deals with uh, problems raised by uh, what are often called credence goods—goods goods that we really can't understand be, uh, without. Without consulting experts about them, that that has lessons for internet and finance companies, and those lessons are some of the things that my book tries to draw out.
1: And the book is the Black Box Society: the secret algorithms that control money and information, and it's
0: soon to be out. Yes, um, I am hoping it will ship towards the end of November, um, and definitely electronic editions out in January twenty fifteen. Absolutely great. Now, what's next for you? I am now working on automation. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm working particularly on a project called uh, "Battle of the Sectors: The Sequencing of Automation." Mm. And my argument in this uh, piece, or the argument that I'm trying to develop, is that we're seeing uh, the deployment of, say, automated systems to replace all sorts of different workers, ranging from drivers, call center operators, teachers, soldiers, um, others, and. What I'm I'm trying to develop a theory of the political economy that is uh, leading automation to happen very fast in some areas and happen slowly in others. And my hope is that this book, by examining the fields of medicine, law, education, and finance, and how computerization is affecting those areas, that it will suggest some ways in which we can um, try to steer ourselves toward or try to reward the most productive uses of automation and try to deter the most destructive, uh, discriminatory uses of of automation. Um, So that's going to be a long-term project. But uh, I actually presented the first uh, stage of it um, in New York uh, earlier this month. And it was – and actually at the Digital Labor Conference this uh, Sunday Mm -hmm. at the New School, I'm going to be presenting more of it. So, yeah.
1: That sounds like something that the New Books and Technology audience would love to read more about. So can they find some of your writings online? Do you have a website?
0: Um, I do. Um, it's Frank Pasquale at Squarespace. Um, also, my my you can probably Google me. I think if you right, type in Frank Pasquale Maryland, I should be the first one to come up. And um, yeah, and this this uh, work on automation is not yet out, but it will be out, I think, pretty soon as well. But, but there's plenty of other. Uh, and I'm at Frank Pasquale on Twitter and sort of frequently put my stuff out there as well.
1: Absolutely. So we thank you for coming on New Books and uh, Technology today. It's been an absolutely great conversation.
0: Oh, thank you. Wonderful questions. And I'd love to, it really has been terrific to be on. This has been New Books and Technology. Have a great week.